Welcome to Oh Good What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has brought hope to the families of hostages and prisoners on both sides, but can it lead to a lasting solution to the conflict in Gaza? Scholar on Israel and Palestine, Yair Wallach, joins us to discuss what's next for the region. Plus, Richard Tice's Reform UK is in the spotlight over claims that Tory Deputy Chair Lee Anderson was offered a substantial cash prize to defect. It gets a lot of attention, especially on GB News, but is reform just a paper tiger? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, a diplomatic row 200 years in the making. Rishi Sunak cancelled a meeting with the Greek PM at the last minute over the fate of the Parthenon marbles, an issue that weirdly does not rival health or the economy in surveys of voter priorities. Is this a Britain problem or a Rishi problem? Let's meet the panel. Hello to commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Dory. I can't believe you didn't say the extra bit for Parthenon backers. It was right there. <laughs> Just left it on the table for you to pick up. It's rightfully a Greek joke. Um, you've been glued to the COVID inquiry this week. Uh, Matt Hancock won't appear until after we record this episode, unfortunately. But we have seen Michael Gove and the Metro mayors, Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan. What did they reveal? I, I am still shook by the biggest revelation of them all, Dorian, quite literally just before I left for the studio, in which Wednesday's Wednesday afternoon's witness confirmed his name as... Dominic René Raab. I, I need to talk about this at length. I won't. <laughs> Don't worry. Well, if we'd known that, um, the, the way, the way we'd he, have done that as topic one. When he was like, going to walk away, René. It would have been a great, great pun. Um, the standout session uh, was Gove's, the first senior politician to accept explicitly that errors were made that resulted in the loss of life and apologised to bereaved families. He's actually quite good at apologising. Like he, has, he has a track record. Yeah, it was, it was a sort of surprising, refreshingly honest start. It didn't last, <laughs> let me tell you, because he basically filibustered the rest of his appearance. By the end, I genuinely had no idea what his answer had been to nine out of ten questions, or even if he had answered them at all. Um, he just constantly went on theoretical tangents to give context or whatever, to the point where both the the uh, uh, Lady Hallett, the justice, and the and counsel were just fed up with him. Like she quite obviously had a little cough signal for he's off again, stop him, and counsel would go, okay. So was he there for vibes rather than facts, that he wanted to present himself as the sort of uh, a decent fellow who acknowledged mistakes were made? I think he treated it as a Laura Kunzberg interview rather than a public inquiry that's trying to get to stuff that might be quite useful for the future um, and didn't want to be pinned down on anything. But the vibes, such as they were, were that it was him and Dominic Cummings that were basically the lockdown hawks pushing for early and hard. Um, and that, I think, is quite revealing and it set, sets up who is to come, mm. um, Sunak, Johnson um, and Hancock, in quite a difficult way, I think, because like the people who were pushing for a lockdown have already revealed themselves. And because we know the lockdowns were late, like the decision makers coming, there is a presumptive understanding that they were the ones that were kind of resisting that and pushing back against it. Rachel Cunliffe is Associate Political Editor at The New Statesman. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Uh, in an article for The Wall Street Journal, uh, Liz Truss has called for America to return to conservative leadership in 2024, which effectively means Donald Trump. 
To me, she seems like Theresa May in reverse. Like, ever since leaving office, she's become more and more right-wing. What is her game? <laughs> well, if you speak to people who know her well or have known her throughout her career, they will tell you that she's actually been remarkably consistent in her views and ideology and this kind of quite radical free market conservatism. Uh, it's just that she was able as a minister under various conservative prime ministers to not hide it, but kind of present a different side of herself. So they will tell you that this is the true Liz Truss. But I can totally see what you mean, because it is kind of normal for high profile politicians, sort of leaders to toe the party line and uh, try and present themselves as being quite sort of strong and, and, and authoritative. And then when they lead off, leave office, they're much more open to nuance and they will consider issues in sort of different ways. And Theresa May is sort of reinventing herself as this strangely moderate liberal conservative. And if you look at her record, you're like, what? And they just generally become more sort of human. You know, he was not prime minister, famously, but Ed Miliband, you know, became vastly more likeable. Mm. Um, Liz Truss does not seem to be going for likeable. But I don't think her goal is to become the elder stateswoman grandee. Her goal... We'll get a podcast. Okay, <laughs> well, I, 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 I feel like uh, charismatic speaking isn't really her thing. Pork markets. Anyway, um, although she has had voice coaching. I saw her at Conservative Party conference um, when she drew this huge crowd and, and her delivery has vastly improved from um, when she was prime minister. But I think what the goal is, is to to build this cross-border, global, free market conservative movement. And there is real money to, in that mm. or, or available from the, the big US think tanks. And there's this idea that liberalism across the world, sort of social democratic po- politics has failed and you need this right-wing sort of libertarian but also very conservative mm. uh, movement to kind of sweep all that to one side and she's got a lot of a lot of fans in in the US on that branch of that wing of radical politics so that's her aim to be part of the think tank network uh, that, that exists to raise a lot of money for right. that and to choose a champion who will then be able to pick up from Rishi Sunak after the next election. Right, there's money and there's a claim in America for someone like her. Yeah. Not so much a claim here. <laughs> but also, that, that, that wing of people in America obsessed with Margaret Thatcher and uh, a conservative woman who has had speech coaching, which Liz Cross obviously has, it's quite appealing to them. Our guest this week is a social and cultural historian of modern Palestine and Israel and a reader in Israeli studies at SOAS. Yaya Wallach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I found you like an essential voice on the conflict since October the 7th. Um, given that we're in a period of furious polarisation, um, I find that you've managed to achieve quite a, uh, a rounded um, view. What's it like in that space? Are there a lot of people you find it in that space where I suppose I would say sort of sympathetic to the, you know, Israeli Israeli left on that kind of space, very much not Netanyahu. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely there are Palestinian commentators who have been quite clear in taking a universalist, humanistic Hmm. position here. 
while, you know, clearly concentrating on the suffering in Gaza. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff, of course, and it's, uh, the, the discourse is, is terrible and vitriolic. But also, the, you know, there are the people that maintain some kind of more consistency. Before we start, a couple of quick reminders. You can still get 10% off our fabulous merchandise at podmarket.co.uk. So head over there for those sought-after hardline centrist t-shirts, tofu-eating wokerati mugs, the must-wear garment for 2024, the retro Romaniacs hate to say we told you so t-shirt, and much, much more. That's podmarket.co.uk. Discount lasts till Sunday. And if you miss tickets for a sold-out live show on Wednesday 13th December, or you live in not London, have no fear. We are streaming the show live exclusively and free for Patreons. Search for Patreon, oh God, what now, or follow the link in the show notes to sign up and get the link. The first pause in hostilities in the current war between Israel and Hamas began on Friday and is continuing as we record on Wednesday afternoon. Dozens of hostages and prisoners on both sides have been freed so far and Gazans have been receiving much needed humanitarian aid. Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant has said that when fighting recommences, its, quote, strength will be greater and it will take place throughout the entire strip. But some observers have said that the military operation will be hard to resume on the same scale. We're lucky to have an expert on the show to talk about this and much more. Yeah, yeah. Various people have claimed credit for negotiating this pause, um, including the Biden administration, pro-ceasefire protesters, um, Qatar. How did it happen? Who, who has made this happen? I mean, it's very difficult to tell, you know, you know, because you have different versions. It's clear that this kind of deal was discussed even before the ground invasion. Mm. So the contours of the deal remain the same in terms of how many Palestinian prisoners would be released and which uh, Israeli hostages would be released. There were maybe details that were not finalized and it's not clear, you know, if Hamas held out or Israel held out. What is what is clear, though, I think that uh, the Israeli military wanted to have the ground invasion only when they achieved at least um, most of what they were planning in the first stage and with the accumulation of pressure from the families, I think that's when the, mm. the deal became possible. It might be that Hamas are under greater pressure because of, you know, losses. That's what the Israeli military is saying. I can't say if it's true or not. Has Biden been effective in his diplomacy, do you think? I think it depends what you, you know, in terms of what he wanted, I think so. The aims were to prevent a further escalation with Lebanon, and I think that's been... He was able to achieve that and then to be able to um, keep a close eye on what Israel is doing and, and kind of prevent certain. <laughs> so around the Shifa hospital, they prevented fighting within the hospital. But of course, many people are uh, very critical of the administration because of the huge toll of civilian, mm. civilian casualties in Gaza. And it's seems that that went, I mean, that was beyond what they expected. And it is absolutely atrocious. And there's some semantic confusion around the word ceasefire of notice. Most people mean a permanent end to hostilities rather than this um, temporary pause. How does the Israeli public feel about the war? Like how, how fully behind a kind of resumption of hostilities are there, given what's happened so far? 
mean, the problem is that there's a, you know, contradiction between the two war aims. On the one hand, Israel public wants the hostages back. The more hostages come back, the more there is a greater desire to see all of them back. But that means some kind of negotiation. That means some longer ceasefire or even permanent ceasefire. At the same time, the Israeli public is resolutely behind the idea that Hamas cannot be allowed to control the Strip anymore. It may take time, but on a fundamental level, I can't see Israeli public coming to terms with Hamas staying in power in Gaza. Um, and that, again, there's a clear contradiction between these two things or a question of priorities. And if the priority is the hostages, then that means pausing the military operation. Is there serious disquiet about the scale of the civilian death toll in, in Israel? Um, not at all, I have to say. I mean, that's been a process that's been going through, uh, you know, each of these wars, the kind of attention to casualties, Palestinian casualties uh, drops, but especially after the 7th of October, anyone arguing for compassion or for actually being aware of the toll on the Palestinians, I mean, their actions are really hostile. Um, yes, and that's, mm. and also Israeli media does not show images of Palestinian casualties. You know, it's it's almost impossible to see them on Israeli te te mm. television. Alex, you mentioned uh, to me that, that some of Netanyahu's critics say that he's effectively lost control of the military operation and will find it hard to go back to the previous approach after this. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's meant as a criticism. <clears throat> I think it's a sort of practical comment, as it were. Um, and, and I think the first reason is to do with the psychology of the international community, because while most of Israel's allies initially, in the shock of what happened on October the 7th, gave it maximum leeway, it became clear that this began to be walked back sort of inch by inch, almost instantly. And, and pretty much all its, its allies have charted how they see this thing going in a general mm. direction, right? As in war, some hostage releases to build trust, small pauses, longer pause, ceasefire, negotiation. And so it, it feels to me almost impossible that there would be widespread endorsement of going back two or three steps in that process. I think emotionally for uh, Israel's allies, it would be very difficult to go, yes, go for it again. Um, I, I think the second reason is a sort of almost physiological one, because I understand from military experts that it's, it's really quite difficult in very short order to send an army into this kind of action in terms of building up their adrenaline and that kind of thing. And then take them down from that heightened state for five or six days and then send them back into battle. Um, and and the third, probably most important one, I think is a legal one because there is a question of proportionality. You know, what was proportional in terms of international law as a response to that massive thing that happened on the 7th of October is not necessarily proportional 40 days later when things have quietened down and there's not that same sense of immediate threat, right? I don't think in terms of international law you could make the same uh, urgency 
argument. We're not we're not in the red mist of war anymore here, right? We are in a much cooler frame of mind and justifying the sort of civilian casualties we have seen in that cooler frame of mind, I think to me feels like a really difficult argument to make legally. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's try and explain to the listeners a bit more about what kind of government we're dealing with there. That Before the war, there were massive protests in Israel against Netanyahu and his very right-wing cabinet. Um, a lot of uh, unease internationally about West Bank settlers who seem completely out of control um, with the state's blessing. I mean, obviously, we've had Likud governments since, since the 70s on and off. Is this the most extreme government Israel has ever had? I mean, absolutely. There's no, there's no question. Not, not close. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear. It includes Bezal Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, who are openly calling for ethnic cleansing in the most explicit terms. Um, and large parts of the Likud itself is speaking in these terms. So, yeah, and there's no, there's no doubt. It is a very extreme government, and the things that they have been talking about and giving cover to in the West Bank are, you know, are the most serious in, in a long time. And I wonder, therefore, what kind of pressure are they susceptible to when people talk about, you know, what um, the US should do or the UK or other countries put pressure on Netanyahu for, for a ceasefire? How kind of, because they don't seem that pliable. It should be said, once, you know, a bit after the war started, the, um, you know, centrist element joined and they are dominant in the war cabinet. Netanyahu is not leading the military effort. It's basically the military and these ministers in cabinet. He's not in control. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the war will be negotiated between the US and the Israeli military. So for good and for bad, you know, Netanyahu is not in the lead. And... Uh, similarly, I think that the extreme right elements within the within the government are also have no impact on where the war is is going. They do have impact on what is happening in the West Bank and within Israel, and then there they are causing damage. Because conventional wisdom says that a war favors a struggling leader. You know, it unites the nation and so on. Polls suggest very much otherwise. What are Netanyahu's prospects? Is it is it that he's He's only going to stay in office while the war is ongoing because they wouldn't want to replace him. Or, like, is he is he finished sooner or later? It's very difficult to see how he's not finished. I mean, first of all, this was the most devastating disaster in Israel's history in 75 years. So see, it's hard to see any prime minister surviving that. But he's seen as responsible in so many ways. He was the architect of the strategy of containing Hamas in this kind of hostile accommodation, mm. very explicitly designed to prevent negotiations, to prevent any kind of two-state solution. He said it very clearly. And the idea was that Hamas can be tamed and can be kept under control. That, you know, that proved disastrous. He's also, in the last year, pushed a highly divisive uh, judicial reform which tore the Israeli public. And he was warned by the Israeli intelligence that this is seen as a huge opportunity for Israel's enemies and that he should reconsider. And he didn't. So, And that's out in the open. So again, he's seen as responsible. Since the 7th of October, he's almost in a shock. He's not able to formulate 
any kind of empathetic response to the Israeli public. He's hardly met any families that were mm. affected mm. of casualties, hardly met any hostage families, given no interviews to Israeli media one-on-one. -on -one. He's given quite a few to American networks, but no, not to Israeli ones. He's seen as almost missing in action. And I mean, he's also not built for this. He's a populist leader built on division and incitement and culture wars. He cannot play the unifier. That's mm. not him. And we can see him very clearly. So all of this, you know, it's almost certain that it will be enormous, enormous rage and anger towards him once uh, once the fight, fighting subsides. Everybody expects that. And obviously there's a, there's a fear, you know, about that he could be replaced by, by somebody worse. I wonder, will will he sort of bring down those extremists in the cabinet with him? Or is there a chance that you could have somebody even further to the right replacing him? I can't see that. I mean, I think the most likely is elections and the most likely outcome is Benny Gantz becoming uh, prime minister. He's a centrist. The right wing also is to some extent, you know, hit by this because they're seen, at least some of the figures were seen as kind of partly responsible because they pushed for this highly divisive um, um, judicial reform. I think the extreme right, some of them, you know, some of them will probably, Itamar Bengvir will probably survive this, but Smotrich, it's not clear if he survives this politically, he might. Currently in the polls, he's not he's not pushing. He's on the uh, threshold of of going into the Knesset, so he might be damaged. I don't. Yeah, I think the right wing will be significantly reduced, at least if we if we trust the current polls. Rachel, thinking about the international reaction, um, I read an interesting piece um, by Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo about the problem of spectator syndrome, that there's a lot of people outside the region who care passionately in one direction or another, but they have no influence and therefore they channel their energies into arguments that don't matter. Most recently, there's been a threat to boycott Stranger Things because the actor Noah Schnapp um, declared Zionism is sexy. And there's lots of examples like that of various sort of brands or celebrities. Um, I mean, what's it, do, you, do you think that is basically it's, that it's all displacement activity, but very sort of toxic displacement activity? Does any of this reaction outside Israel um, make a difference? I think there are two different things going on there. One is about celebrity culture and what we have come to expect of mm. our celebrities, particularly ones who have big fan bases like Stranger Things, but like to choose a completely different topic and show that this is not just about this particular issue. Uh, Taylor Swift fans wrote a long letter saying that, you know, she'd betrayed them by having the wrong boyfriend and they were going to boycott her for that. There was an actress who I can't remember, there's an Instagram picture of her smoking and that was apparently a betrayal of her fans. Internet culture has created this idea that if we engage with popular culture and we buy the music or we stream the shows, then somehow those actors or those celebrities owe us something and they owe us some sort of ideological purity and if we don't like it, you know, we should boycott the show. And I think it's become quite unhealthy with celebrity culture and I think that's something that we can probably pick up in all kinds of mm. political issues. But specifically on this, 
I have felt really unsettled by how what is going on in Israel and Gaza has become kind of memefied internationally. And there are very complex geopolitical issues at play that we're talking about here. But a lot of the discourse, particularly on social media, is very binary. And in a way, the Palestinian cause has been associated with climate justice. I think people who have become very used to picking a side on any kind of culture war mm. politics issue and have transferred that I am on the right side to this, which is much more complicated and has much bigger consequences. I mean, you can't say... I'm thinking about Greta Thunberg and the row over... Well, firstly, the row over her getting involved in all this at all. But then, again, the backlash because she had a cuddly toy octopus and apparently that's an anti that was said to be an anti-Semitic symbol. We saw something similar as well with University oh, Challenge. Was weird, it was weird. Though. It was really weird. It was a contestant on University Challenge who was wearing uh, colours that in certain light looked a little bit like the Palestinian flag. And they again, they had the, the octopus mascot. And this was apparently a big BBC conspiracy and people pointed out that this was filmed back in March and it's not that but like the Christmas advert with the the lights allegedly yeah, yeah, you know, the, burning Palestinian yeah. colours and yeah it's just what is I mean what is going is I mean it bears saying again I think that there are a lot of people out there who are struggling with their mental health and that social media does bring the very worst out in, in people like that and I think Th that I feel that encourages me to take a compassionate um, approach when someone comes at me with some like totally weird stuff. But it, this has been very straight. I, I about a week ago I said something which I consider quite innocuous. I guess I said, you know, a permanent ceasefire depends on trust, and the only way to build trust is via a series of pauses that are observed. So come on, guys, let's not argue. And, you know, and I, I swear I had a hundred messages going literally, you genocidal centrist C word. Why not just say that you love seeing dead brown babies? I like hundreds of tweets like that. And I, I struggle to like, where is this coming from? Well, yeah, obviously, I'm not I'm not naive about, you know, how you feel about this issue. And I know the Palestinian cause has been sort of integral to the left since the international left since like the 1970s. And yet still, I have been shocked by all the kind of, you know, sort of morbid symptoms, I suppose. Have you have you been? Have you been surprised? Or is this what you would expect when this issue collides with social media as it is now I think the surprising thing here was the was the 7th of October it surprised all of us and the scale uh, of the atrocity and that was very difficult I think to think of Israelis just as victims you know mm -hmm. as also mm -hmm. victims of rapes or, or of murder and so forth I mean it's very difficult I think for all the people who are used to see as well as the aggressor and the occupier, etc., to do a certain switch and to think um, 
you know, you could really see people struggling with that. It is disappointing. I mean, it's, and it also doesn't make sense because, you know, any way forward, whatever you think involved the Israeli society as well, they have to be part of the equation. And uh, so to, to pretend that you can shut them out or to imagine them all mm. as, as, you know, evil or, or lying and so forth is... is uh, is not useful, but also I think partly it's kind of it's easy because the on the state side, on the official side, you know, the international community, the West is very much clearly on Israel's side and allows, uh, you know, the bombing to go ahead. So people kind of say, well, we'll just take the other side to kind of balance it out. But it just creates a... <laughs> not a helpful discussion. And can I, can I just add to that that I have found it very unsettling that the in the UK as the left far left has adopted the pro-Palestinian cause in quite alarming ways I have also found it very unsettling how the right in this country has seized on anti-semitism as a way to attack Muslim communities and immigrant yeah. communities. And I felt this very strongly with the row over the Armistice Day march. Um, and individuals, and I'm not going to name them on this podcast, but everyone knows who they are, but individuals who really didn't care about the Jews in any meaningful way prior to this are mm. now using the Jewish community and start saying they're standing up for the Jewish community as a way to pursue Islamophobia. And it's really uncomfortable to be in the middle, to be Jewish and be in the middle of it and to see the far right kind of adopting that as a cause when you know it's there's an ulterior motive there. Well, there seems to be, um, there is a strange thing that, that, that you can be sort of anti-Semitic in one way, but you can be pro-Israel. So you're like Elon Musk was welcomed by Netanyahu days after endorsing the Great Replacement theory, and so there's the kind of thing that, that some of the people saying that they care about anti-Semitism are then practicing the anti-Semitism just in a different in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and it feels like and have done for a long time. And it feels like the Jewish community is sort of being held in the middle of this other culture war that isn't really about. Mm what's going on in Israel and Gaza at all. Um, and it, it, it's quite uncomfortable to have people ostensibly supporting you when they're actually doing a lot of damage and saying things in the name of mm. the Jewish community that are really quite disturbing. Um, yeah, yeah, looking forward a bit. Um, I'm wondering what this does to Israel's standing um, in the world, that before the war, you know, the BDS movement has had limited success over the last 20 years or so. You know, many artists and academics refuse to boycott the country. They go, I'm not going to boycott the people, even if I disagree with the government. You still get people going and performing there and going to conferences there. I wonder whether some of those people would find that almost, you know, impossible to make that case in the near future. Do you think that Israel will become more isolated as a result of this war? It depends on what, what's going to happen, because if we arrive at a certain stalemate and what happened in Gaza ends up being effectively ethnic cleansing of the north of the Strip and not allowing a million people to go back, that will have an effect, I think, on uh, how Israel is seen. I think already people are reporting kind of more kind of uh, shadow boy boycotts, the Israeli academia. I don't know how much this is measurable. But the key thing, I think, is, where, you know, BDS has 
I mean, everybody talks about the academic and the cultural boycott, but in terms of economic mm. impact on Israel, BD has has had has had no effect whatsoever. You know, Israel has entrenched its occupation; it's transformed into a de facto apartheid uh, um, situation, and there has been no. Uh, no sanctions, no consequences, n- nothing. Mm. So everybody talks about uh, this academic or this singer. That it really doesn't matter. It's not also not clear to me that it's very easy to um, to pride this kind of pressure because of the nature of Israeli mm. export and economy. So and that's really what matters. And in in its geopolitical significance, I mean, who is the other yeah. big ally in the region? You know, you can't just go, oh, we'll just, we'll have no one that's friendly to us in the Middle East. After the fighting, Gaza's obviously going to need governing by somebody or other. It's also going to need extensive rebuilding. I mean, just an extraordinary effort to make it habitable again. Who do you think will end up in charge of that? If not, you know, obviously... Not Hamas, or presumably not Hamas, but but who, but who will? Do you expect a, an Israeli occupation or some kind of Palestinian authority? There is a quite likely outcome of this, of this kind of stalemate for for a year, for more, um, that in which Israel controls the north of the Strip and some kind of anarchy and some kind of counterattacks from the south of the Strip. No reconstruction, no Uh, and, and people will not be allowed back. The only other scenario is for Hamas to leave the Strip, I think, and the Hamas leadership as part of a bigger, probably prisoner release deal and uh, resumption of negotiations. It's not a likely, but it's a possible scenario, but that would re- require a change of government in Israel. It's certainly not going to happen before the next summer. So we're talking about a real... immediate humanitarian catastrophe in South Gaza um, that, uh, that people are not thinking seriously about. And there wasn't much of a peace process before October the 7th. And, and now, obviously, people talk about whether they, they would prefer a one-state solution, two-state solution, whatever. Is, is there any kind of peace process, do you think, possible in the short term? Because I suppose what this has proved, in some ways, obviously, it's made everything far, far worse. It has also proved, though, that, that Netanyahu's, um, you know, strategy of kind of allying with slash containing Hamas hasn't worked. Um, you know, Biden has made, you know, statements to the effect that until you have some kind of peace process, you, this this sort of crisis never ends. Is Are there... avenues or possibilities beyond this stalemate? I mean, it's it's a moment of huge shock. And these kind of things create, you know, developments that we can't anticipate. I mean, it happened in 73, and it's on that scale and even more. So it's impossible to predict. It can go, uh, it go, go to the worst. I mean, it, there's still... a chance of, of a regional war and there is still a chance of of the right wing trying to push people in Gaza across the border to Egypt. But uh, it, it can also go in the way that uh, of a reinvigorated left maybe or in, in the Israeli political map that will call for resumption of negotiation. I think it's clear that, you know, containing the situation and, and pretending that Palestinians can be ignored 
I think that that's clear to everyone that that's no longer possible. Thanks, Ye. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's have a quick question for one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Uh, we've got a But Your Email special coming up on Wednesday, 6th of December. We'll be answering lots of Patreon questions to sign up and send yours and make it good. This week, Guy Buckland says, Can it ever be justified for a politician to appear on an entertainment show? I don't know what prompted this question. Can it be right <laughs> for an individual who has spent a career honing their debate, presentation and argumentation skills? Oh, it's not about Nigel Farage then. Uh, to be allowed to pitch themselves to the public when there is no one sufficiently experienced to cross-examine them. I haven't been watching I'm a Celebrity, so I don't know if that's true and that maybe there is a... A, a Deal you, with it as a general. A YouTuber or f- sports person who is, in fact, sufficiently experienced to cross-examine them. Um, Rachel. Yes. You think it is okay? <laughs> no, no, I was just... Uh, you were uh, just like, yes, I am Rachel. Yes, I am Rachel. Is it okay? Well, Not in this particular case, maybe, but just ever. You're not going to stop them, are you? Um, Why not, though? Surely, like, because when Hancock went in, right? Yeah. I thought, could the Tory party not just go, look, you are not allowed to appear on reality shows as long as you're a sitting MP? But Nigel Farage is neither a member of the Tory party nor a sitting MP. Um, And uh, I think any kind of exploration of how we got here, you want to look not at... Nigel Farage or Matt Hancock and I'm a celebrity get me out of here you want to look at Boris Johnson on have I got news for you and you probably want to have a wider conversation about the American politicians who appear on uh, I'm going to get the names of the shows all wrong but Saturday Night Live and John Oliver and come on someone help me out here I don't watch them well Um, of course Donald Trump and The Apprentice being I mean he wasn't a politician then well I think that's that's slightly different I think uh, and I think you're going to see more of that which is celebrities who have a fan base moving into politics again I think if if, if Taylor Swift wanted to run for president she'd have a pretty good shot at it Um, which I think is different from amazing if Joe Biden just went I am not standing after all please meet your new candidate Taylor Swift it wouldn't happen like that obviously would it no it would be on stage (laughs) and she would come in on a big wrecking ball and just literally just bash him off technically Miley Cyrus who I also think would be better uh, than than many of the, the contenders I think that's a slightly different question to politicians going on reality TV shows. Um, I think the bigger issue is them not offering themselves up for serious interview. And it used to be the case, I think, that if you wanted to make it in politics, you had to go be interviewed by, I don't know, Andrew Neil or um, Mm. uh, somebody help me out here. Paxman? <laughs> exactly, Paxman. And you had to face the grilling and 
sometimes it would be uncomfortable and you you weren't just trying to deal with political issues and little sound bites that were uh, snapped up for Twitter and, and Dominic Cummings obviously with Boris Johnson said no we're not doing any of that we're not going to put ministers on the Today programme you know we can reach the public mm. without that level of scrutiny if you banned them from going on reality TV shows they'd just make their own TikToks wouldn't they I mean Matt Hancock's on TikTok which is terrifying for me well um Nigel Farage's uh, appearance on I'm a Celebrity, um, apparently they've they've lost more than two million viewers year on year, um, which is almost one viewer, more than one viewer for every pound that they paid Nigel Farage. Um, so maybe there is an economic disincentive, but would you just say no? Let's say just MPs where you actually can have some control. I, do you know, I kind of disagree with the premise of the question a little bit because I think it is imagining a different kind of interviewing journalist that's sufficiently expert to sort of grill these people. Um, and sometimes I have seen people be grilled much more effectively by sort of big brother housemates than they have by, um, you know, Laura Kunzberg or Kay Burley. And so in an environment where actually they can't um, filibuster their 10 minutes um, and can be much more effective. And they can't so escape because they're in the jungle. Yeah, it's, you know, unless they actually go, get me out of here, which is, I think, the the format of the game, isn't it? That at any point you can go get me out of here. You sound like a high court judge. I believe <laughs> the format is that the celebrities can say, get so, me out of I here. Think, yes, I haven't seen it for so many years. I think what Alex is suggesting, and I think it's genius, by the way, and we should all trademark it now, is a specifically political version of... I'm a politician, get me out of here, where you stick a whole load of high-profile political figures in a setting, could be a jungle, could be, I don't know, a remote island on northern it, Scotland yeah, or something. The Arctic base from exactly. the Exactly. And you stick them there with uh, some regular voters and, you know, one or two political journalists, yeah. and you film them constantly, and you get all those answers out of them that you can't get out of them in your 10-minute segment on, on Sky News I, or whatever. I like that. an interview that never ends. Exactly! I, I, mean, yeah. no, I really like that. Like, your jungle trial, Boris Johnson, is to spend 15 minutes with this angry bunch of fishermen that you lied to, or this group of Northern Ireland businesses that you said could put the forms in and the bin. And farmers. And if you don't do it, you yep. don't eat. Amazing. Right? <laughs> Amazing television. Um, yeah, no, I think I can get quite banny on this. You're quite banny generally quite speaking. Banny. I was like that like, the other episode. I was just like the worst liberal ban days. think tanks. Um, I will also ban politicians from appearing on the entertainment show. I don't know about the legality of that. I'll, I'll look into well, it. Then, then, then we're not going to cut you into our new TV show that we just invented. <laughs> this one, this will be the one. Ex- okay, we can host exception. it. It'll be great. We are the new end of all. <laughs> and that's how I lost a million pounds. <laughs> Next this week, while Nigel Farage prats around in the jungle, his political brainchild Reform UK seems to be faring a bit better. In some recent polls, they're just a few points behind the Lib Dems, and leader Richard Tice has no intention of helping out the Tories by standing down candidates in the next election, as Farage did with the Brexit Party in 2019. Rachel, you interviewed Tice for the New Statesman recently. Um, And I can reveal that we had uh, blood orange iced tea. 
That's quite nice. Yeah, it was really nice. Blood, orange and hibiscus, I think. That's really how, good. That's how they get to you. Client journalist. <laughs> As a Ramona, I cannot stand the man, but how does he how does he come across? Does he have, you know, political charisma? Yeah, he really does. In a very different way to Nigel Farage. I mean, the thing that everyone forgets about Nigel Farage is that the reason he has achieved the success towards his mission that he has is because he can connect with people. He's got real charisma, the sort of guy in the pub kind of vibe. Uh, Richard Tice isn't like that. He's um, very much a city posh boy, but he's also very charming and very reasonable. And he sort of laid out all of his policies and what reform want to do and his plan of how he was going to get there. And I was sitting there thinking, I disagree with virtually all of this, but you know, I can see what your strategic comms plan is. And I think it is more viable is the wrong word. I think it is something to pay attention to more than is priced in at the moment in the political discourse because I think people have a tendency to go, oh my goodness, I disagree with all of this so strongly. Yeah. You know, why, why would we pay any attention to that? And I think we should be paying attention to it because uh, a lot of people are warmer to some of the, the things that they want to do, um, particularly attacks on net zero um, and the cost of net zero in particular and obviously immigration um, and they are going forward with very very clear messaging in a way that the Conservative Party is trying to or sort of having an internal fight over um, and I think it will be quite effective for them. I mean it's not a massive innovation to to be fair they are cut and pasting things that have worked very, very mm. well on the continent. So basically they're going super right wing on social stuff and quite left wing on economic stuff. Very left wing on economic stuff. In many cases, like Ma more Ma left than Labour. Matthew Goodwin's going to be excited. Um, yes. Um, so we know this is a formula that works. We absolutely know this. OK, so that's interesting because he calls the Tories uh, com-socialists, which is not Try again. Not a good one. Um, but, you know, when this is also the party of Suella Braverman and, and Lee Anderson, do you think that there really is space to the right of this version of the Tory party then? Well, I don't think the Conservative Party is the party of Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson. I think those individuals are in the party mm. uh, and they are a, a very vocal wing of it. But everything that you're seeing at the moment with the, the trouble that Rishi Sunak is having is because there are multiple wings of the Conservative Party and they're all fighting. I mean, he just brought in David Cameron as uh, Foreign Secretary, um, who is very much not of that of that wing. And I think the sell for... <laughs> I think the sell for reform is... Yes, there are some individuals in the Tory party, but, you know, they are fighting against the moderates. We don't have to fight anyone. We, you know, we're very clear in our messaging. And if you are a voter uh, for whom that those kind of policies appeal, why would you go for the party that is fighting itself and you don't know whether those individuals are going to be triumphant or not when there's a party that is dedicated specifically to that? I mean, they've also got the benefit of knowing that they're never actually going to be in power and therefore they can go for very simplistic slogans and solutions, whereas Rishi Sunak is actually trying to run a country mm. and it's more complicated. But one thing that um, sort of struck me when I interviewed Tice is he showed me, he's running to be an MP in Hartlepool, and he showed me uh, a property that he'd bought there, which is on like the roundabout as you go into the, the town, and he'd painted it bright, 
blue, sky blue, which is the colours of reform, previously the Brexit party. And he's just painted the policies onto the side of the wall. So if you're coming into that town, if you're driving in, you just see cut taxes, uh, lower immigration, stop not, not stop the boats. I can't remember what the policies are and I shouldn't mm. be advertising them on this podcast either. But, you know, he's, just, he's literally taken, taken yeah. the paint it on a bus and put it on he's a building. He's not living in this house, presumably. It's, it's the ham- it's the campaign headquarters. Oh, okay. Sorry, I just thought like that would I would respect it if he then <laughs> had to live in that house. Yeah, I can see Oakshot. Um, <laughs> um, just going to the local Wilco. And its reform has had a name change. It is now Reform UK colon the Brexit Party. Like mm-hmm. when solo artists have to put their former band names in brackets <laughs> on the poster uh, to sell tickets. And um, what's what's the strategy? I mean, the strategy is that, isn't it? But to like, sell what, tickets. <laughs> but presumably, because obviously Brexit more, is not that popular, I don't think but it's presumably more it's popular with the people yeah, they I like. I don't think it's more sophisticated than that. I think reminding people about Brexit works for their demographic. And I think uh, also don't uh, underestimate the amount of revenue they got last time from saying to everyone, anyone that wants to stand for us, you know, 25 quid apply here. It was 50 quid last time. They've cut it to 25 this time. But they generate an enormous amount of revenue from all, like, the hardcore Brexiters that just want to be part of the movement. They're playing to the fans, like the people that buy yeah, box com- sets. Completely, like, completely. Reach, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to politely disagree a little bit on the Tories not being that party. I think they are that party, actually. Because I think between two sides, one of whom offers very simple, um, you know, primary color solutions and another side that says, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, I think the simple side will always win in that kind of debate, especially if you have sort of, you know, got your voter constituency used to that kind of populist vibe which they did through Brexit and then you know get Brexit done was the thing that got them ele- elected last time and i think if the if the conservatives head into opposition that will be so attractive to do as an opposition to just go well we just send them all back i mean the reason it's not working now is because they're in a position to fucking do it so everyone every time they say well just put them on the plane and send them to rwanda everyone goes off you go then oh wait you can't you've done some polling geek work on why reforms numbers fluctuate so much like how how reliable are they i mean this is not a reflection on the polling it's just statistical fact the smaller the sample, the bigger the possible variation, especially if you are rounding to whole numbers, right? So as many companies tend to do. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a sample of a thousand people. One week, you have 7.4% rounded down to seven that say, I'm going to vote for reform. And the next week, you have 9.6% rounded up to 10 that say, I will vote for reform. That's a 3% swing. It takes 22 people changing their mind in that sample. So what I'm saying is, in a small sample, a tiny number of people wavering can make massive difference. I have had a look at a really massive poll from our friends at Best for Britain. Um, Now, these figures are raw, 
and they haven't weighted yet. They haven't been, you know, checked. But we are talking about a huge sample. They usually use over 20, 25,000 people. And reform comes in in the middle of that range, as you would expect, around about 8%. Okay. And around about 8% is exactly the threshold at which conservative strategists begin to really worry. It's exactly the sort of level where they can't really make an impact for themselves, but they can really fuck up the Conservatives. Well, this came up in your piece, Rachel, um, that reform may have cost, Ty certainly claims they did, the Tories, the Tamworth and Mid-Vedshire by-elections because of the kind of um, the difference in the vote there. Why won't he make the kind of deal Farage made in 2019 and, and, and stand down? Does he just, like... Does he just hate them? Yeah, essentially. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you what he said to me, which is uh, verbatim quote, they could offer me five million quid in a peerage and I wouldn't make a deal. Now, I don't know if anyone on TCHQ has offered him five million quid in a peerage. They might want to try it. Um, but his position is that he wants to annihilate the Conservatives, essentially, um, completely as a party. And they see, he sees possibly that as the path to proportional representation. So he was talking to me very enthusiastically about a Labour government, because the belief is that a Labour government might be more inclined towards voting reform than a Conservative government. And I said, you know, but you're closer to the Tories than you are to Labour. Are you not worried about handing Keir Starmer victory? And he's like, no. Said he wants to wants to teach them a lesson. Now, again, I don't know if the offer was on the table, mm-hmm. whether there might be more negotiation. They also claim, by the way, that there wasn't a deal last time round. Um, they just decided that um, the, the 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 strategy, the, the aim of getting Brexit done, right, um, that was enough that they would stand down in Conservative seats. Did so you buy that? that? Did you buy that? That there wasn't a deal. Yeah. I don't think there was ever anything written down. No, I don't. No, I'm not. Yeah, obviously, because they didn't get anything in return. <laughs> yeah, they didn't get anything in return, and I think there is anger at how the Conservative Party has done Brexit or not done Brexit in those years. And I also think there's sort of an awareness that if you want to build a political brand, getting lots of attention by attacking the Conservatives is a good way to to do it. That's how we do it. (laughs) Um, Reformers deny trying to bribe Lee Anderson to switch parties, um, but they have been courting Tory MPs. Now, back in 2014, um, defectors to UKIP were a huge boost and, and... <clears throat> even though there are only two of them, um, that that, you know, did help move Cameron towards um, the EU referendum. Does reform need defections in order to kind of like, you know, step up a level? Well, the thing that gave them a lot of attention when they were the Brexit party was they were the, they, they, they essentially won the European elections in May <laughs> 2019, yeah. mm. um, they were the, the, the they, they got the most votes. And now that we don't have European elections anymore, why don't we have European elections anymore? We should really look into that. Um, they they don't have as many opportunities to make a stand that way and say, look, in these elections, these are the votes that we got. But there's more than one way of getting attention. I don't see a, the prospect of high-profile conservative defections, not least because. The next leadership contest to replace Rishi Sunak is is kind of happening already. Mm. And Conservative MPs, either they're going to lose their seats or they want to be around for that so that they can help 
shape the party right, and right. choose the next leader. But what you might see is if it's a very devastating defeat, then you might see some former Conservative MPs who have lost their seats moving into the reform space and possibly some kind of fracturing of the Conservative brand. But again, I don't think that is the aim. I think the aim is to just keep agitating from the right and work with parties. They're working with the Lib Dems, they're working with the Greens, they're working with the SNP and, and other smaller parties on voting reform as a key mm. issue. And that is, I think, where they see the, the biggest chance of, of progress. That's interesting that they are working with these parties. On well, they're, they're working with Make Votes Matter, which works with all oh, the parties. Oh, OK, OK. So obviously those parties have some disagreements yes. amongst themselves. Um, and, you know, the radical right always seems like the strongest argument against PR. Uh, what's happened in the Netherlands has made people very nervous. I mean, it's quite complicated because Gert Wilders hasn't been able to form a government yet. Mm. Um, but, I mean, is that... Is that something that sort of hurts the PR cause if you've got Richard Tice being a loud champion and then you suddenly think, oh, this would entrench uh, a radical right? He probably doesn't consider it that, but, you know, party in the political landscape and, and in the commons. I don't know, to be honest, because it depends on the <clears throat> on your philosophical take or, or on whether if there's a chunk of the electorate that wants X, whether it's better for that to be expressed in a democratic way or not expressed. Because it seems to me that a two-party system, in the same way that the presidential elections in France have worked, it's almost like a dare to the far right to see how, how far you can go before they actually become the ruling party, right? Mm. So... We're not talking about the stakes are a lot higher. We're not talking about 17% and having to form a coalition with another four parties in Holland, which means in practice that the vast majority of his policies will be neutered effectively. He will be gentrified as he goes into government, as we have seen time and again when you know, smaller radical parties have to coalesce. So what you're doing is playing this very high stakes game that's all or nothing. That's saying, we'll keep pissing people off until they actually elect a Richard Tice government, um, like with an absolute majority, which seems to me quite a risky strategy. How does this work in, um, in, his, in Israeli politics then, where it seems to have brought in some um, very extreme characters into cabinet. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's not a, it's not a panacea. I mean, it's it's pretty unique uh, constellation. I mean, I think it's Netanyahu's legal uh, problems, the fact that he's charged with corruption that made him do that. He he really refrained from doing it before. As someone who grew up in a country in a, with a proportional system, first past the poll seems to me profoundly anti-democratic. Principle. I mean, you, it's it's not, uh, you know, the fact that if you have uh, a majority in a certain area, you can ha get representation like the SNP. But if you have even larger in the whole country, you don't get. Seems to me just can't be defended. And I think we're talking all this is about hypothetical for the future, but it's already happened here. Brexit. Yeah. So it's it's already happened. And, and, and that was part of that dare, wasn't it, of saying, 
you can't do anything about it. it it'll be centre-right and centre-left mm. forever. And the first time people had an opportunity, actually, mm. to express dissatisfaction with that, in however wrong-minded a way, they went for it. We've always reached the end of the show, uh, so it's time to uh, talk about the stories that have gone under the radar this week. Alex? Um, so, I know it's weird, but my under the radar this week is PMQs on Wednesday, because we haven't talked about that today. Everyone watches PMQs, Alex. No, they don't. Um, Millions. The, the, people see a few highlights, I think, on the no, 10 o'clock yeah. news, but if you watched... The entirety of PMQs on Wednesday. I say that I not only watched it, but I reviewed it for the New Statesman. Well, there you go. Continue, Alex. I, 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 I'm curious to see if you agree. It seemed to me a really new low for Sunak. He just seemed utterly beaten. He looked like he was about to cry at times. It, the entire... Um, opposition benches were just laughing at him. The benches behind him were deathly silent. He just seemed utterly, utterly defeated. I have never um, seen, um, like, had it been a boxing fight, someone would have thrown him in the towel. very sad. I hope he's okay. So mine is the end of indefinite jail sentences, which is criminal justice, not a particularly sexy issue, but a really important one. So over uh, 1,800 offenders who have been released on licence, but they were serving these indefinite sentences, IPP they're called, Imprisonment for Public Protection, have had those sentences um, terminated. And basically, this was something that was brought in and it was meant to be for the most serious crimes. And thousands of offenders were given it for relatively minor offences, which means that you have people who are serving indefinite sentences longer for, for sort of minor crimes like armed burglary than for murder that were committed since then. And criminal justice reform is a hugely important issue and the overpopulation, overcrowding in our prisons is hugely important. I've just done a big interview on this for the New Statesman with Chris Atkins, prison reformer, and this is actually good news and I very rarely get to talk about positive criminal justice stories. So this is one of them. It's a complex issue, but go read about it because it is actually really important. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. The ongoing massacres in West Afford, which almost get no mention, we're talking about in this November, we're talking about thousands, uh, around a thousand of people murdered, tens of thousands of refugees in Chad. There's already half a million from Darfur in Chad because it started in April. And that's the rapid, rapid support forces who are one faction in the civil war with the Sudanese armed forces and it's a rapid support forces who are committing um, ethnic cleansing and, and massacres. And yes, I was, I mean, it's surprising how much little of this gets reported. I mean, I only know it because I follow a few people who uh, write on Sudan um, on Twitter. So I guess mm. Twitter still has a purpose in that sense. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's an, on, you know, it's an mm. ongoing civil war that, you know, with millions of refugees and and so many casualties. Yeah, they say weirdly underreported. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Alex Andreu. My pleasure. Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you. And our guest, Yeye Wallach. Thank you. 
Stick around for the extra bit after Demonism wants to buy Corner Shop and a salute to our generous supporters. You can join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus bonus good stuff. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how, and don't forget about our Christmas shop at podmarket.co.uk. Hello and happy December from me to Dorothy Blair, Amy Reed, and El Daifo. Many thanks for your support and hello from me to Helen Hayward, Linda Burrows and Simon McBride. And finally, a warm thank you to new arrival Debbie and welcome back to Robert O'Malley and Pauline Card. We will see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Rachel Cunliffe. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Our direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Rishi Sunak caused an almighty fuss by cancelling a meeting with Greek PM Kyriakos Mitsotakis at the last minute, apparently because Mitsotakis reneged on a promise that he wouldn't bring up the return of the Parthenon sculptures, a long-running bone of contention between the two countries. So the Parthenon sculptures, also called the Parthenon marbles, also called the Elgin marbles, after the British diplomat who brought them here 200 years ago. Um, Briefly, what are they and how did Lord Elgin get away with it? Okay, so those things are not the same things. Um, there we the, go. Failed already. To, yeah, it's like, so the Parthenon marbles are the bits that were stolen off the Parthenon mm. and actually are in several museums around the world. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're not confined to the British Museum. The Elgin marbles are all the stuff that Elgin stole and they're not confined to the Parthenon. He stole bits of loads of buildings and artifacts from loads of sites. So, um, so it's so what, mean, do we call the, what do we call these things? The, I think people are trying to be polite and, and not call them The Parthenon marbles is perfectly appropriate when it comes to Greece asking the British Museum for the return of these things. Okay. Because it's really specific, basically. What does the Greek press um, make of this? Are they pleased that their man Mitsotakis is uh, sticking up for them? I tell you what, not many things can unite the political spectrum in Greece, but this has. From the far right to the far left, everyone thinks this was just absolute wank um, by Sunak. Uh, Everyone is united. The Greeks are immense Anglophiles. I cannot tell you how slighted they feel by this. British culture, in terms of music, in terms of literature, in terms of television, is heavily, heavily, intravenously almost consumed in Greece. Um, From Lord Byron onwards, they basically consider there is this great amity between our two nations. We have fought together in practically every war going. And um, the vast majority of people feel really slighted. So how big a deal is is the return of the marbles? Is this a kind of, you know, a big sort of wound... In, uh, in the Greek psyche? I mean, it started as a nationalist ruse, weirdly, but it has developed into something of a very legitimate claim because I think um, we had a, an incredibly famous, uh, iconic actress, Melina Mercuri, as our Minister of Culture in the sort of late 80s. And she made a very good diplomatic um, sort of fist of uh, um, of 
promoting this issue around the world. And she was basically told by the British that the problem was there wasn't really an appropriate modern museum in, in Athens in which to house them. So off go the Greeks and build uh, you know, the Acropolis Museum next to the site, beautifully l l located to display the thing. Do, do they have like a space there? Comple just like yes, all like yes. the outlines there is a, ready. A, there is a completely empty room for those marbles um, it, as a political point, obviously. But, but you know, it is considered one of the top museums right. in the world now. And so after we built it and we went, OK, we're, and, and the British Museum still said, nah, do you know what, nah, um, it, it became a big political issue. So, yeah, you've been to the Acropolis Museum, right? I mean, you spend an hour there and you come out thinking they should be here. There's no question about it. I mean, it's such a good museum. It, it gives the, these things such a such a beautiful space and light, and it's kind of a really. I I really can't see anyone <laughs> leaving the museum, <laughs> not thinking, you know, why aren't they here? Uh, so yeah, it's very compelling. Or the British Museum, for that matter. You know, whenever I go to the British Museum and see the the rest of them here, you know, especially like the single caryatid. You know, those female statues that acted as columns on the west um, front of the, of the um, Acropolis. Like, to, to have 11 of them in Greece and one of them standing on her own here in, a, in an empty room, it just seems, it, it seems cruel to her. Um, Rachel, Starmer had a lovely chat with Mitsotakis. Did. Um, but Labour have said that the fate of the marbles... That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you would like more Marble Thoughts and a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning and some lovely merchandise perfect for Christmas presents. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm -hmm.